there's no such thing as a safe tobacco product, but there certainly are safer by large margin. It's disappointing that we see a lot of the schism in public health today around uh, you know, vaping and, and almost uh, forgetting about the fact that most of the people that are filling up our hospital are here because of smoking, not because of vaping. Hi, I'm Brent Stafford, and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. As we've reported endlessly over the past years, there appears to be a schism within public health between those who believe safer nicotine products play a valuable role in helping smokers to quit, and with those who believe that, compared to vaping, smoking is the lesser of two evils. What could possibly explain the gulf between these two positions? Joining us today to discuss this question and more is renowned tobacco control researcher Dr. Michael Cummings, professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the Medical University of South Carolina. He formerly led the tobacco control program at Roswell Park Cancer Center, and in 2002, Dr. Cummings helped establish the ITC project. Dr. Cummings, thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. Glad to be here. Well, you are a bit of a legend, uh, so when I do the first top-line question, is there a battle being waged over safer nicotine products? There is, and there has been for many decades, I think. Uh, and it, it really, the schism is those that, uh, you know, see the future uh, really focused on preventing uh, new users from coming into the market and therefore they're primarily concerned with youth you know young kids taking up cigarettes or other forms of nicotine versus those of us who've uh, sort of been at the forefront of trying to help uh, addicted adult smokers to get off of, of cigarettes so you've got about 30 years or so i i understand in tobacco control why don't you fill our viewers in a bit on your background well it's actually 40 years i wish it were just 30. <laughs> <laughs> I've been at this for quite a while. I started at Roswell Park in uh, uh, 1981 um, and really learned tobacco control from smokers. So I you know, started up clinics uh, for people uh, who were calling a cancer hospital uh, and asking for help to quit smoking. And there was no help at the time. And somebody suggested that maybe we should start up a stop smoking class. And so um, that you know, introduced me to really a research career in trying to figure out why it's so hard for people to get off of cigarettes, what they experience uh, when they try to quit, how to prevent young people from taking up uh, cigarettes. And, uh, you know, sort of that's been my career path over the next 40 years. Uh, you know, I ran clinics, I've, you know, done many studies uh, evaluating, you know, from gum to patches to pills to vaccines to help people quit smoking. Uh, and now, you know, large systems. I helped establish the New York State Smokers Quit Line when I was at Roswell Park. Uh, and uh, when I came here to the Medical University of South Carolina in 2011, uh, got involved with uh, helping our hospital establish a program uh, to help people quit. I mean, people do a lot of research, but unless you translate some of the research into action, it sort of is meaningless. And so um, my tact is to, you know, basically uh, eliminate cigarette use because it does so much uh, destruction. You know, one in two long-term users are going to die prematurely as a result of smoking. Describe some of your work with the U.S. Surgeon General. 
Well, I've been involved uh, in various reports. Uh, the first one I got involved with in 1988, I was a reviewer for the report, um, essentially why people smoke. That was the one that was on nicotine addiction. Um, and they, I guess they must have liked me because uh, after I sent in my review comments the next year, I got asked to write a chapter uh, for the 1989 Surgeon General's report. That one was on the 25th anniversary. My contribution was primarily around doing the history of smoking cessation interventions, um, which, you know, they're, they're not very good. <laughs> it's hard to get people off of cigarettes once they uh, get, get started. And, uh, you know, of course, there was nicotine replacement therapy, but you know, the U.S. federal government did not, uh, you know, announce that cigarette or accept that uh, nicotine was a drug until 1984 when they uh, regulated uh, nicotine gum. That's when it came into the market. And um, uh, the FDA finally exerted its regulatory authority over all tobacco products uh, really in 2016. Uh, but, you know, started with the uh, Tobacco Control Act in 2009, which gave uh, the FDA authority to regulate cigarettes and smokeless tobacco. And then in 2016, that was extended to other tobacco products. So the U.S. government, you had said it was 1984 that they recognized that nicotine was addictive? Yeah, they, they sort of got it a little bit late. I mean, there was the 1906 uh, law for FDA where they had a list of things that, uh, you know, could be regulated under the U.S. government authority. And um, uh, various drugs, and uh, nicotine was left off the list. And, uh, and then in 1938, uh, when FDA assumed authority over regulating medical devices, food products, uh, cigarettes, and other tobacco products were left off the list. So uh, it's been a long time uh, getting to where we are today with FDA regulatory authority. And of course, uh, all good regulators know you're doing a good job when everyone hates you, which I think is uh, probably the case with the FDA today. They have a lot of challenges. The market has evolved. And, you know, and I've written uh, some things about the FDA, as many people have, in terms of their regulatory authority. I have a citizen's petition that I filed a few years ago urging the FDA to follow through on its uh, framework of uh, a a nicotine regulated market, but with, uh, you know, acknowledging a continuum of risk with some products uh, coming in very dirty delivery systems, in other words, the combusted products, versus the cleaner uh, nicotine delivery non-combustible products, which include things like vaping, but also oral tobacco products, and uh, who knows what will come next. Is it fair to say that nicotine has been unfairly demonized? Yes. I think it is, uh, I mean, because it's been linked to cigarettes, appropriately so. It's the reason that people are persistent daily smokers for, you know, not only years, but decades to the point where they get, you know, sick from smoking. And so nicotine is that reason. <laughs> so it is the fundamental link. But people die from the tar. They don't die from the nicotine. Now, a lot of people are confused about that. And... Uh, that is one of the challenges that the FDA, I think, has and, and other government agencies is to try to correct misperceptions that the public has about nicotine and, uh, you know, safer, 
nicotine products. Uh, there's no such thing as a safe tobacco product, but there certainly are safer uh, tobacco products uh, by large margins. I mean, um, so you can look at, you know, nobody would tell a non-user to use a nicotine patch. You know, they would, you ever use nicotine gum? I've, I've tried nicotine gum. I'm not a tobacco user, but you know, it'll give me a rush and a headache. And it's not very pleasant to be honest with you, but um, you know, you wouldn't want non-users using any form of nicotine, but for an addicted smoker, to switch from deadly cigarettes or cigars or pipe tobacco to a non-combusted product makes perfect sense. And uh, that's, it's disappointing that we see a lot of the schism in public health today around, uh, you know, vaping and, and almost uh, forgetting about the fact that most of the people that are filling up our hospital <laughs> every day are here because of smoking, not because of vaping. Yeah, I guess that's a really good point. Let's try to make here right off the bat. I mean, how much of an impact do smoking related disease still have on the population in the United States? It's, it's a huge impact because uh, you have to go back historically uh, to, you know, the cohorts of uh, men and women who took up smoking in large numbers, you know, in the 40s, 50s, 60s. Uh, and those are the patients that we see showing up in our uh, hospital today. And, uh, you know, that will eventually peter out. We are seeing a sharp decline in lung cancer incidents that's directly resulting from uh, the decline in, in cigarette consumption that's taken place. But um, we can accelerate that decline by moving people off of deadly cigarettes sooner than later. And, and that's the debate. Are we better off just letting the clock time out in the United States and, and throw all our effort into preventing young people from using any form of nicotine? Or is there a benefit to be had by helping those who are addicted to cigarettes, particularly older people, those are the ones you're going to get the benefit from in terms of return on investment in preventing lung cancer, COPD, heart disease. Um, I, I personally think there's got to be a balance. and But I can see the other side saying, they're hopelessly addicted. Smoking cessation methods haven't worked so well in you know, bending down the curve of smoking rates. And so why do we think vaping or alternative nicotine products will make a difference? So what does the research show with regard to efficacy of vaping, nicotine vaping products, in terms of smoking cessation? It's uh, mixed. <laughs> there are certainly randomized trials that are somewhat persuasive. Uh, but they're not as generalizable because you self-select people into the randomized trials. But there are a number of those, and they generally consistently show what you would expect. You give people a nicotine replacement product, uh, they smoke less, and therefore you get more smoking cessation, and that would be a good thing. Um, and then when you use the population studies, uh, even the longitudinal ones, you've got a lot of mixture of use. A lot of use of vaping is occasional. It's not converting people to regular daily uh, substitution, which is what you really need to do if you're going to be, you know, you don't tell somebody, you know, using a patch or a gum to use it occasionally. You tell them to use it every day as a replacement for cigarettes. It's supposed to help you deal with nicotine withdrawal. 
so you're not climbing the wall and returning back to smoking again. And the same is true with, you know, vaping or oral nicotine products. If somebody is a heavy smoker, um, they need to use the alternative nicotine products on a daily basis. And if they do that, then we seem to see uh, more transition away from cigarettes completely where you're getting former users or even in the dual users, uh, you're seeing reductions in cigarette consumption and the move to non-daily smoking, uh, which is a step in the right direction. Can you answer the question on how safe nicotine vapes are? Um, they seem to be a lot safer than cigarettes um, just because of the chemical make nature. I mean, you're generating some 7,000 chemicals, uh, 70 plus carcinogens in every puff of a cigarette. Um, and while there are, uh, you know, if you heat uh, vaping products at a high temperature, you can generate some of the same uh, bad chemicals. There's markedly different chemical you know, uh, mixture in vaping. Uh, but uh, we all know that uh, the long-term effects are not known. I mean, vaping has been around for about a decade. Uh, we don't even know among <laughs> long-term vapors how many of them there really are. There are some, but nobody's done a good cohort study to follow them, and that needs to be done. I sort of look like at vaping like we could have been looking at smoking back in the early part of the 20th century. You know, when the modern American cigarette really got, you know, got its roots uh, with R.J. Reynolds introducing, you know, the American blend with Camel in 1913 and all the other cigarette companies followed suit, uh, cigarette sales take off. And uh, had we had a good epidemiologic study, maybe we wouldn't have had to wait to 1950 to have sort of the convergence of evidence that, you know, really created the first health scares around smoking and and uh, disease, um, and it's gonna be more complicated with vaping because uh, if vaping is used the way it should be, which is for people who are smokers to transition away from the deadly cigarettes, then you're looking at what's the benefit gained in terms of compared to what they would gain if they were to just quit smoking. We know there are huge benefits to quitting smoking, um, are those benefits you know, eliminated if you do vaping? I don't think they are. Uh, we do have long-term studies of people who switch to nicotine gum. There's a study done years ago with uh, people with the beginning stages of COPD, that's emphysema and chronic bronchitis. And they had a group that got nicotine gum for as long as they wanted to use it. And over the long-term, there was a huge mortality benefit from those who got the gum, they were more likely to stay off of cigarettes and therefore not have their disease advance uh, as rapidly as the group that uh, was in the control that you know got the placebos. And it was relatively safe. <laughs> and it was relatively safe, right? Yeah. And I would imagine too, I mean, obviously this is something that we've covered on the show on numerous occasions. It's just like, how do you actually really know if you've got a former smoker using a vaping product and they develop cancer, did the vape give it a cancer or was it the 20 years of smoking? Well, you have to know the history. Uh, and I go into the courtroom all the time to, you know, testify uh, against cigarette companies. And, you know, their lawyers are always very good about looking at, you know, alternative causes of somebody's disease. 
So, um, you know, be relevant to look at, you know, the history of exposure, uh, be it from cigarettes or vaping or, um, or other sources that may cause somebody's disease. Have you ever had to um, testify in court either for or against nicotine vaping products? Um, well, I, I, I only really do cigarette cases. I've been asked uh, to do the cases, uh, and there are a number of trials you know, ongoing against the vaping industry in the United States, and I've declined participating because I guess they don't want my views because <laughs> I think vaping you know, has a benefit. It's certainly not a benefit for a young person. I don't think it's a terrible harm necessarily other than addiction. And addiction could lead to ill-gotten gains. Certainly in the, you know, if you, you get addicted to something and have to spend your money uh, to buy, you know, the alternative nicotine, say a jewel product or whatever. I mean, you know, the company should be held liable for having you to, you know, taking away part of your your free will, essentially, uh, to, you know, not have to use that product and spend the money. But in terms of health risks, I think it gets a little harder, at least with the data that we have available uh, to say there's a real harm, even in young people uh, who are vaping. And, and so, but in, in many of the cigarette cases I do, and when I read the histories, <clears throat> particularly in recent years, it's not unusual to find these smokers who've struggled, you know, they've tried the patches, they've tried the pills, uh, they've tried cold turkey and switching to lower tar cigarettes under the illusion that somehow that was going to help them get off of cigarettes and lower the harm. Uh, and many of them find their way uh, to e-cigarettes and some of them quit. And so that's what I see. And vaping is an interesting, I was nev never a fan of vaping when it first sort of showed up uh, in the early part of the 20th century. I was a skeptic. Yes, another, you know, so-called reduced harm product out there. And um, it really was smokers who educated me about, just like they educated me in my clinics, <laughs> that this is something you should pay attention to. And I think we should. So colloquially, that's like, I saw the light. Yes. Well, and we should be, you know, as a scientist, you've got to be open to change your opinion when you see the data. So when you see more and more people who are, uh, you know, struggling to get off cigarettes, who are finding vaping as a way to stay away from cigarettes, I don't think that's something that we should ignore at all. And uh, we, we should be listening to the smokers. Unfortunately, the way public health has sort of evolved, it's been a war against smokers. And that was never the intent. I always have viewed myself working at a cancer center, uh, you know, originally at Roswell Park and now here at the Hollings Cancer Center at the Medical University of South Carolina. You know, I'm an advocate um, for cancer prevention and working with smokers to prevent them. Nobody chooses to get cancer. And we shouldn't be facilitating them getting cancer. And if there's anything that we can do to prevent that, we should be doing it. So what do you think lies then at the heart of the discord, the differing positions? Well, I think part of it had to do with uh, clean indoor air laws, uh, which were, um, you know, appropriate because what 
it did was change the social norms around smoking because it introduced us to the fact that you shouldn't be riding around in a, uh, a tube uh, full of smokers uh, like airplane flight attendants were exposed for, for decades uh, or having to go you know, to your favorite restaurant or work in a restaurant and be exposed or a casino or all the various places where people were exposed and, and there was harm. And so that, you know, created a different denominator, uh, but that's been taken to the extreme, I think. And, um, you know, smokers now feel ostracized. Uh, they don't want to expose their family members. And most smokers I know have rules about smoking. They try to be considerate. They will go outside. I mean, that's why clean indoor air laws worked because they were largely self-enforcing. You didn't have to have the smoke Gestapo come in to, you know, uh, tell people, you know, not to be lighting up in the bar or the restaurants. People sort of got it once the evidence was there. So science sort of drove that and that was good. But, uh, you know, taking it to the extremes of making smokers feel bad about, you know, being addicted, which we do in a lot of other areas and you know, people have other drug addictions, uh, but those are medical issues and they should be treated as a public health problem, uh, not as a, uh, a stigma. And so, you know, we have, I work here in the Department of Psychiatry, <laughs> we have behavioral health programs to treat people trying to get off of, you know, opioids and cocaine and uh, alcohol. And uh, we utilize all kinds of uh, harm reducing methods uh, for those folks, and they were not always accepted. And some of the uh, methods that uh, were shunned uh, decades ago, like clean needles, um, you know, teaches lessons. But, you know, again, harm reduction in the other drug area really came also from the drug users themselves and recognizing um, that the goal is to prevent, you know, premature death and letting people have a quality of life that's reasonable for living. Well, let me ask you that because uh, from our view, often it seems that tobacco control doesn't seem to care a lot about smoking deaths anymore. Well, I, I think that's wrong, <laughs> but uh, I do think the schism reflects that. And I think some who are focused on youth with a passion to prevent uptake do um, ignore uh, to their peril, I think, uh, the harm that it causes adult smokers, and we shouldn't give up on those adult smokers. And and I sometimes I think there's a lot of lip service given. Oh yes, you know, we we also support you know insurance coverage for this or that. You know, I mean, uh, really, <laughs> try to get reimbursed for treating smoking in a medical setting, it's, you know, it's sort of a joke. It's not, you know, really treated the way it should be, like it is for treating hypertension, for example, as a medical condition. And um, that I don't think is going to change anytime soon. I, I really am very supportive of, you know, FDA, you know, Dr. Gottlieb's approach, where he said, you know, we should go after cigarettes and reduce the appeal of and, and the addictiveness of cigarettes and very low nicotine standard makes a lot of sense. I know not everybody on the harm reduction side agrees to this, but I, I think it makes a lot of sense because it would reduce 
the thing that reinforces the persistent daily use of cigarettes. And when we ask smokers about it, they don't want to be addicted. They want choice. And, you know, the best way to give smokers choice is to remove the thing that makes cigarettes so deadly, which is that they are engineered to be addictive and they don't have to be. And uh, many smokers, if you want to smoke for for tar or for, you know, blowing smoke rings or whatever the other cues, and there are other reasons that people do enjoy smoking, fine, go for it. Um, you know, you can do that with a very low nicotine cigarette, but many people, when they're switched to very low nicotine cigarettes, and these are people not intending to quit, they smoke less, and many of them transition to quitting, and that would be a benefit. Now, where do they go? <laughs> and if you had alternative lower-risk nicotine products, many of them might migrate to the lower-risk products, uh, like vaping or oral tobacco or patches or gum, uh, heat tobacco products, and that could save some lives. Dr. Cummings, tell our viewers a little bit about uh, the Tobacco Reform Initiative, the National Tobacco Reform Initiative. That was the, uh, the old folks club for smoking cessation, I think. They uh, really got started with John Seffron, a former uh, a CEO of the American Cancer Society, uh, and Alan Erickson, and a few other uh, folks who were brought in um, to really address around the 2014 period, what seemed to be little attention being given to stalled smoking cessation rates in this country, uh, where all the emphasis was really being uh, garnered really in terms of preventing youth from uh, taking up uh, vaping for the most part. And so we created this you know, organization to try to um, provide uh, increased awareness around the problem of uh, cigarette use in adults um, and have communicated with uh, you know, the FDA. We have filed comments to the FDA on behalf of uh, you know, sort of senior uh, tobacco control people who'd sort of been through the war. <laughs> uh, you can see some of them there, Dave Abrams uh, uh, and Alan Erickson. Um, he was former vice president for the American Cancer Society, you know, did many of the famous uh, uh, American Cancer Society anti-smoking campaigns, Great American Smokeout, probably being the best uh, known of those, um, and uh, John Seffron. So basically, we were just trying to say, what could we do? What three things could be done nationally to sort of accelerate a reduction in adult smoking? And uh, those the three things that we came up with are sort of obvious. I mean, raise the price of cigarettes uh, and, uh, you know, continue to promote uh, clean indoor air uh, and make available, you know, existing smoking cessation uh, treatments. Um, so standard tobacco control things. And then uh, the third one was increase the availability of, of lower risk alternatives, a place for smokers to go. And uh, I think those three things still hold today. Uh, we haven't really done a very good job with the alternatives. I mean, you know, we're waiting for the FDA to bless, you know, the PMTAs. We have one e-cigarette views uh, that's been approved. Um, you know, we're waiting to see what other 
products still approved. They have approved ICOS, but ICOS is no longer on the market because the cigarette companies are fighting between themselves over uh, patent rights and so on. But um, And there's very little incentive for cigarette companies to give up the profits. The profitability of cigarettes are so enormous. I mean, the regulations really need to shift uh, the where the profit center is. If you make it harder to make money selling cigarettes, um, then you know, then there'll be opportunities to make money selling lower risk products. And if you can get over worrying about who makes the money and focus on saving lives, we could actually make a difference. So differential taxation of you know the lower risk and the higher risk products would make us a, a lot of sense. Um, I think regulations to reduce the appeal of cigarettes. I'm, I'm a big fan of a menthol ban on cigarettes and cigars, but not extending the flavor restrictions to the lower risk alternatives. That's where I think differential regulations would make some sense. Do you think regulators are making science-based decisions then with regard to vaping? I think they are. The FDA, Mitch Zeller certainly has, uh, and, and, and Dr. Gottlieb, when he was the head of the FDA, uh, put forward a reasonable framework, um, although some of the elements of that framework, I think uh, politics probably inter interfere with it uh, uh, coming forward in, in full bloom. And of course, it doesn't help uh, when you know, we, we get the fear you know, mongering around you know, vaping in youth. I mean, a lot of the uh, vaping <laughs> efforts, anti-harm reduction efforts that I see being promoted by, you know, groups that I think have a, a reasonable place to have their voice heard, but they, they sound very much like the temperance movement of the 20th, early 20th century. It's like, it's being reinvented, as I say. So, you know, we have, you know, moms against vaping. Well, I can see moms being a pretty powerful vaping uh, force and not being happy about their kids getting addicted to vaping products. But, you know, that's just a vehicle for some of the politicians to be moving to ban vaping products. And, you know, let's not, you know, I, I personally think, and I've heard stated, that you know, banning flavors in vaping products is just a way of banning vaping products. Well, it certainly would have that effect, but you don't even need to go that far. Just look at the PMTA process. They're not banning flavors, but they're doing a pretty decent job of wiping out a large majority of the vaping industry. Right, and the flavor bans have led to synthetic nicotine, uh, which you know is just uh, you know shows that uh, the. The nicotine business is very resilient. <laughs> and, you know, they're going to find a way uh, to avoid being regulated. What we really need are standards for different product categories that make sense. And uh, there are some bad players, frankly, in the vaping business, and they haven't helped themselves in, in you know, as I'm an outsider in the public health area, but I you know, I think there are some companies that have tried to do the right thing and move forward. Um, but I have also seen some companies that just, uh, you know, were uh, looking to make a quick buck and move on. And so the whack-a-mole regulations you have, which is what FDA, I mean, FDA goes through a process, they'll 
they've eliminated some vaping products from the market and then they show up on a different website under a different name a few months later. I mean, that's not helping anyone. What we need are some clear standards and some truth telling about um, the relative health risks of different tobacco product categories. I mean, is it so hard to understand when you burn something and generate, you know, 7,000 chemicals uh, that that's worse than, you know, heating something and generating a whole lot fewer chemicals? I don't think it is. With regard to nicotine vaping, is the genie out of the bottle and can't get put back in? Yes. We've got a, you know, multi-billion dollar industry. Um, it's global. Um, and I think the genie is out of the bottle. Innov you can't stop innovation. <laughs> Which, And it's not surprising that young people were the first ones to take up vaping. I mean, young people were the first ones to take up cigarettes when, you know, Camel invented or, you know, Reynolds invented Camel's cigarettes with the modern blend, making it inhalable creating generations of cigarette smokers addicted to the product. Um, and, and young people were the first to go to filters. Uh, so is it surprising that young people, you know, were the first to go to vaping? I mean, it's the same as computers, you know, mobile phones, almost anything. And, you know, if you go back to areas of innovation and technology, it's, you know, it's not the old people. The problem is it's the old people that would benefit the most by getting off the cigarettes today. So how do we make that happen? And I think the way to make that happen is devaluing the cigarette, you know, very low nicotine, menthol out, high taxes, and, 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 and providing truthful information about the alternatives. And making those, yeah, you got to make those alternatives easy to use and accessible uh, to older smokers. Right now, the industry is just lowering the price. I mean, it's, they're, you know, and they're, and they're still making money. So as long as they can still print the money with the cigarette machine, which is what's going on, um, we have a big hill to climb. I wanted to ask you about uh, the lower nicotine products because um, one has just been approved by FDA. And I've always thought that at least the old stories that I used to hear about the light cigarettes was that um, a user would inhale more deeply to get what they needed and thus they would do much more damage. And so wouldn't a lower nicotine cigarette also present the same issue? You would think so. Uh, and in fact, that's been the utility of the science that's come out, which has shown that if you go below a threshold level of nicotine, the person can't compensate uh, enough uh, to um, keep people smoking because with low, you know, light and ultralight cigarettes, uh, there was enough nicotine available in the tobacco rod to be extracted that allowed the person to compensate and keep smoking. And what the cigarette companies uh, recognized early on is you sold more units and you kept people smoking longer who might have otherwise abandoned smoking. Uh, so it was a win-win for them. But if you go to a very low level in the, in the rod, so it's really talking about the amount of nicotine available, um, then, you know, compensation is, uh, it, it doesn't really exist. And that's what the uh, scientific studies that FDA has funded over the last 10 years have shown. Um, 
So that gives me confidence. You can go to a very low uh, nicotine level. And, and the industry had done those studies back in the, you know, well, certainly I can see, find them from Philip Morris uh, done in the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, and ironically, they introduced a product that would have met that standard next in uh, merit, DNIC, which was their denicotinized cigarette introduced in the late 80s. And uh, of course, they didn't acknowledge in the late 80s that cigarettes were addictive or dangerous. <laughs> so, you know, why should we? Now, but now we know, and they could have, that just shows you they could have been offering those and they would have saved so many lives. And I personally don't know how the cigarette companies get away with continuing to sell, you know, what is clearly a defectively engineered product, knowingly is going to be responsible for one out of two um, long-term, you know, users of their product uh, to die prematurely when you have alternatives. And they could lower the nicotine in the in the cigarette. They could prevent the compensation, and it it's been doable for decades. Here's uh, for our audience a letter coming out of the Iowa Department of Justice Office of the Attorney General, and that's Thomas J. Miller. Uh, and you're part of this letter. I'd like to you to address what exactly was it that you guys were trying to achieve with this? And also in here, I found it very interesting that you were using the term smoking harm reduction as opposed to tobacco harm reduction. And I'm wondering if you could address that too as well. Sure. I mean, the smoking versus tobacco harm reduction is just being clear about what we're talking about, which is you benefit from getting people off of the smoke. So smoking harm reduction versus not all tobacco products generate smoke. So e-cigarettes, heat tobacco products, uh, oral tobacco or non-combustible forms of, of tobacco. So it would be safer. Um, so that's the rationale there. The letter was written uh, you know, early on when President Biden uh, came into office. Uh, there's you know, a lot of misinformation uh, about science. We see it today around you know, issues of the vaccine and COVID and many issues in science, climate science, uh, and certainly in the tobacco area. And so we wrote to the task force to let them know about some of the misinformation we saw getting communicated to the public, which we thought was counterproductive and something that uh, the White House and their you know, task force on scientific integrity uh, needs to you know, pay some attention to. And we hope with a new commissioner to the FDA uh, recently this week, uh, getting approved by a slim margin, but thankfully uh, was approved uh, given all the issues that are confronting the FDA, that the uh, that the policies that come forward will be uh, based on science and not on emotion and, and rhetoric and ideology. I mean, it should be based on the facts and the science. And, you know, the science does evolve. Uh, and wherever the science takes you, that's where the policy should take us. Uh, but um, I think a lot of the policies, like the flavor bans for vaping, and uh, really are based more on emotion. Uh, rather than than science. Uh, we don't have really good evidence that those policies will reduce youth vaping, which is why they are being proposed. Yeah, and certainly there has been some research out that has shown some one out of Yale University that the flavor ban might actually even increase some teen smoking. 
Yeah, and that was the study out of California looking at the San Francisco uh, ban. And, you know, the San Francisco uh, ban was was good, except it went too far. I mean, you know, why didn't you stop at cigarettes and cigars and combustible tobacco with your flavor ban? Uh, but, you know, they they moved it to take account treating equivalently all tobacco products, which makes no sense. And a number of uh, communities have uh, followed suit and it's really wrong uh, and non-science driven. Uh, and that's what we communicated in our letter. Uh, a number of us signed off on that letter and I uh, was happy that Tom Miller, uh, attorney general from Iowa and also the new chair of the uh, state attorney generals uh, was willing to put on his letterhead. And, and Tom has been an advocate for science and facts to drive policy rather than um, ideology. Is there a difference between science conducted in the United States and say science conducted in the UK? Because there appears to be two different understandings. Actually, it's interesting. Uh, the United Kingdom, which has definitely taken uh, more of a um, I think science-based approach to looking at and weighing the risks and benefits of alternative nicotine products than we have here in the U.S. In the U.S., it's a lot of the science is based on trying to, you know, it's focused on the danger. And so much of the research is focused on non-tobacco users, kids uh, taking up vaping uh, and not looking at the potential benefits on the other side, where there's been I think more of a balanced presentation of that evidence in the UK, which I think uh, really harkens back to the UK's history in the area of harm reduction in drugs. Um, reading a very interesting book uh, called Undoing Drugs, uh, it talked about some of the harm reduction around uh, heroin use and AIDS prevention and so on with clean needles and actually doctors even prescribing uh, heroin as a way to, you know, get addicts uh, their fix without having them uh, have to, you know, uh, risk uh, exposing themselves to the AIDS virus and so on. So uh, uh, it seems, you know, they're saving lives, which is what doctors are supposed to do. And that grew out of work uh, coming out of Europe, particularly in the UK, Liverpool and so on in, in the 70s and 80s. And uh, so it's not surprising that there's they're a little bit more open. I think it's just been baked into the culture of public health and how you deal with drug addiction. It's not without controversy even in the UK, but um, in the US, we've always been, you know, just say no. Uh, the Nancy Reagan, you know, and we know that prohibition doesn't work. It didn't work for tobacco and cigarettes. I mean, many states in, in the U.S. banned the sale of cigarettes in the turn of the 20th century. Um, and, you know, that fell away uh, by the late 20s and it was ineffective, you know, and the same happened with alcohol and so on. And uh, it's interesting, the experiments in prohibition uh, came up during the COVID lockdown in South Africa. Uh, where an illicit market of cigarettes grew and now the government didn't get their tax revenue and have little control over the market. And uh, they've rescinded their, their restrictions on the sale of cigarettes there. 
uh, Bhutan, a little country sandwiched between India and China. A little hard to get uh, tobacco products too. I don't think they grow tobacco, so it all sort of gets imported in. They banned uh, cigarette sales a number of years ago, and they have very low smoking rates to start with. So, um, but you know, quietly this year, uh, well, I guess it was probably in 2021, last year, they uh, removed uh, the prohibition and they went back. They said the illicit market is more of a problem, and you know, we don't want to be locking up people for for smoking. That's not consistent. Uh, so. So there are some examples and they've failed. And so how do you live with cigarettes, devalue them and offer, you know, better valued, lower risk alternatives for those people who want to choose to use nicotine, but in a safer way.